As you read through the Gospel of St. John, you will find the usage of the, the double emphasis verily, verily, time and time again. Some 25 times is actually found in our English translation of John's Gospel. It just is another way of saying, surely, surely, we, we've all said that, or truly, truly. And whenever it was, whenever, whatever Jesus had to say, and it was prefaced by that verily, verily. And this is the 17th time that he said it in John's Gospel, chapter 12 and verse 24. Everybody knew that there was a statement of substance and importance and significance that was going to be shared. Chapter 12 records for us, of course, the triumphant entry of Christ into Jerusalem. So it's a great marker in the Gospel of St. John itself. And what a joyous welcome awaited the Saviour. The inhabitants of the city, the Bible tells us, they lined the street. And they took the very leaves from the palm trees. And they decorated, as it were, the very roadway that the Lord Jesus was going to travel into Jerusalem. And they hailed him as the Messiah. But they had aspirations that were temporal rather than spiritual. And it's always what people's true heart motivation really is that tells you what they are about. They believed that the coming prince was coming to reign over a temporal kingdom from the city of Jerusalem. And that he would free them, liberate them from the dominion of imperial Rome. And of course they were thinking of past national glories, the great reigns of Solomon, the great reign of David. And they were thinking of future glory when that kingdom would be re-established again and, the, and their earthly nationalistic power would once again be re-established. Now strange to me that the Roman authorities that ruled Jerusalem at that time and the Jewish authorities that were in Jerusalem at that time, they were silent. God silenced them. Because the Messiah had to be welcomed according to the great prophecies of the Old Testament scripture. And in the midst of all of this jubilation, and in the midst of all of this celebration, there were certain Greeks, and they came, and they asked Philip, Sir, could we see Jesus? So here you have the streets of Jerusalem lined with Jewish people. You have Gentiles now coming and they are asking to see the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is very understandable that the disciples were persuaded that something of dramatic importance was going to happen. Was he going to take the throne in Jerusalem just at that time? Now in contrast to the thoughts of the disciples were the thoughts of the Lord Jesus Christ and the crowds which welcomed him. Because the emphasis in John 12 is that the hour of his destiny had come. The Lord Jesus was always very particular about time. And he now knew that his hour had come. This was the hour of his destiny. Because Jerusalem would be the place in a few days time in which he would be condemned and he would be led from Jerusalem outside its city walls and there he would be crucified by the Romans and he fully realised that in order for him to take the crown he must first of all endure the cross in order for those that welcomed him 
uh, to be part of his spiritual eternal kingdom. He had to endure the cross for them. And so he illustrated this great foundational truth of biblical Christianity by a familiar figure that was taken from nature and from the harvest field. Our text, John 12 and verse 24. Now the illustration would have been very clear and vivid at that time because it was not more than just a few days before the feast of the Passover. Now the feast of the Passover was not just a great a religious feast in Israel, but it was also the time of the harvest. So we had the harvest, which was the temporal aspect of it, and we had the Passover, which was the spiritual aspect of it, all coming together in this wonderful illustration that Jesus used. The seeds had been sown months earlier, and, and of course by the natural process of, of decomposition and death, they had brought forth an abundant harvest. And all round about them, it was very evident for all to see, was the bounty and the beauty of the harvest field. So the Lord Jesus compared himself to a grain of wheat. Just a little grain of wheat that had to die before they could live. In our time around the word of God tonight, we're going to go back again to this foundational truth. It doesn't matter what time of the year you're at. Everything in true biblical Christianity comes back to the cross. And we're coming back to the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ again this evening. We're reminded in this comparison, first of all, that the Lord Jesus gave us of the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I can think of no greater contrast in all of scripture in the comparison that the Lord Jesus he gave to us. He gave to us a vivid description of his estate of humiliation. We know that in his incarnation he came and that those steps of humiliation are recorded for us in such passages as Philippians chapter 2. Those steps that led him downward. And he compares himself in his estate of humiliation to one little tiny corn of wheat. The word that's used for corn is the same as used for grain. One little tiny grain of wheat. I asked her brother John, what did a grain of wheat look like? And could he get me one? Well, of course, he went the double mile and he got me a bag of them. Now can you see the wheat up at the front here? In this little glass, was that side. Do you see it? One little tiny grain of wheat. Jesus said, I'm just like one little tiny grain of wheat. Linda and I, we counted out all the wheat in this bag last night. Can any of the boys and girls tell me how many, how many do you estimate that's in that bag? Can you even hazard a guess? Yes. Oh, 300, that's a lot. Any more than 300, yes? 1,000. 1,000, we're getting up the, the field now. All right, 300, 1,000, there's a good multiplication. Anything else? There's a pack of the sweets for whoever comes closest to it. Even some of the big people. I was told not to ask the big people. Yes, Jacob. Oh, you've got inside information. 22,000 
grains in that little bag from one little grain of wheat. I was struck by so many things in this comparison. I was struck by the choiceness of the comparison. One single grain, look at it, just under that little jar down there, that glass. Just one little grain. It doesn't look very much. It looks very inconspicuous. What could, what could it do? It's very unimportant uh, to the human eye, outwardly at least. It has little size, it has really very little shape, and it has very little strength. And yet locked into that little grain of corn that we're talking about is the very power of life itself. What an amazing analogy that the Lord Jesus gives in this passage of scripture. This little grain of wheat, brethren and sisters, it's the staff of life for millions across the world this evening. In fact, if we go further, I would say the very survival of humanity itself is dependent upon that little grain of wheat. So when the incarnate Son of God came to dwell amongst men, and when he compared himself to this one little tiny grain of wheat, he was telling us that it was covering something of more amazing and glorious substance that we could ever conceive or contemplate. The people who looked at Christ, they didn't know by his outward appearance who he really was. What did they see? They just saw a grain of wheat. They just saw the outer kernel. They just saw what was going to be put in the ground and decompose and die. They didn't see anything more, much more than that. Of course, the disciples, they had seen a lot, hadn't they? They had been with him now for nearly three years. They had witnessed his miracles, his power over nature, his power over sickness, his power over human maladies. They had seen the Lord Jesus at work. All sickness, it was said, was nearly dispatched from Galilee. The power of God was so prevalent in that whole area in which the Lord Jesus Christ ministered. And yet they didn't know who Jesus was. They asked that very question in this passage. They didn't know who he was. Because as with Wesley we can say. Inside this little uh, kernel of wheat. Was veiled in flesh the Godhead. Veiled in flesh the Godhead. When we think of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his humiliation. The multitudes couldn't see who he was. And brethren and sisters the world doesn't see who Jesus is still to this very present day that we live in. They don't see who he is. They don't know who he is. There's nothing in them that would attract them to him. That's why Isaiah the prophet said, Who hath believed our report? And they said concerning Jesus that he was like as a root out of dry ground. He had no form nor comeliness that we should see any beauty in him. To the world today, he's still just an inconspicuous, insignificant little grain of wheat. I'm struck again by the uniqueness of the comparison. Because in the verse, the Lord Jesus refers back to his uh, eternal existence. Seed has a prior life. All seed has a prior life. And that prior life could go back to creation itself if you really wanted to be very dogmatic about it. Seed has a prior life. And long before Bethlehem, 
and long before the manger. The Lord Jesus Christ had a prior life in eternity because he was the eternal son of God. There's a lovely reference here to the time in which he was abiding alone. And that's a mystery to contemplate. Before creation, the glorious trinity filled all of the immensity of space. There were no galaxies. There were no planets. There was nothing out there. Just the, the darkness of eternity itself. And in that immensity of eternity, God dwelt. How amazing. And in that time that we can't even visualize, the eternal Son was with the Father and the Holy Spirit. John's Gospel, of course, opens up with that stupendous truth. John's Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 1, it tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God. Just hold on to that. The same was in the beginning with God. The Word was with God. And who was that Word? Well, verse 14 tells us, The Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld His glory, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We wonder, we wonder, we marvel, that He who filled all of time and space who dwelt alone, who didn't need anything to compliment him or add on to him or fulfill him. He who dwelt alone, he condescended to be likened unto a grain of wheat. We should wonder that Christ should leave that estate and come into this world. But if he hadn't have come, there would be no heaven for any of us tonight. There's also purposefulness in this comparison. The wheat fell to the ground. Now, that's very important. We shouldn't take from that expression that it was haphazard. I've read that, that some men have said just, no, it's not haphazard. The idea of sowing is intended. Because when the sower went out to sow, of course, the seed fell to the ground. That's the great parable that Jesus told, the parable of the sower. So there's a bigger plan in view here. The Lord Jesus was sent on a divine mission. We read in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, when the fullness of time was come, just at the right time, just at the purposeful time, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. The grain of wheat was very intentionally sown on the ground. That's important. Deity was clothed with sinless humanity and it made contact with the ground. Why is that important? Well it's important because Genesis 3.17 tells us that when God came and spoke to Adam and Eve and to Satan after the fall in the garden of Eden that God said to Adam because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee saying thou shalt not eat of it cursed is the ground for thy sake you know it's a marvel of God's grace that there's any harvest from the ground because it's cursed 
And if you want a reminder of that, that's why thistles and thorns grow from it. That's why weeds continually spring up in your garden. Why? Because of the curse of sin upon it. Christ came into this sin-cursed world in order to redeem those that were under the curse of the law. The law of God put a curse upon all who knew not God and all who fell short of his glory. And it took the sinless, spotless Son of God to come to liberate us and to free us from the curse. The comparison, once again, reminds us of the powerfulness of this single little grain. And that one little grain is life. I reminded the people this morning in Tandragi that their church wonderfully decorated with all of this wonderful fruit and flowers and from the A to the Z and back again. And I got them to put that one little grain under a tumbler at the front because that's the only thing that had life in it. All the other stuff in a few days was going to die. But the only thing that had life in it was the seed, the grain. And there's only one way to life, men and women, and that is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other life but in him. We read in John 1 and 4, the Lord Jesus introduced this whole subject because we read there the preface of the whole of the, the Gospel of St. John. In him was life. Where is the life to be had? In Christ. There are many young people today and they're looking for life. Many older people too looking for life. At the bottom of a bottle. It's tragic to think in Northern Ireland. This little province of ours in the past year over 300 people have died through alcohol abuse. Is the life there? There's only death in that bottle. There's only death in it. And all of the addictions and the abuse that so characterizes modern society, there's death, there's judgment, there's decay, there's an early grave, there's a life that is misspent. Where's the life? It's in that little grain. It's in Christ. And in none other. This is how John summarizes his gospel. John twenty thirty one. These are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. That's wonderful. There's life through believing in that precious name. I'm glad I have the life of that little seed within my soul tonight. That's the most glorious truth of all. That every Christian in the gathering tonight may think of the life that's in that little grain. Let me tell you, you as a Christian have that life of God within your soul. And thank the Lord for it this evening. The humiliation of Christ. Secondly, we're taught from the comparison about the crucifixion of Christ. The grain of wheat, when it contacted the earth, it died. Once it came into contact with the soil and with the dampness and with the rain, it soon died, it decomposed and it died. If that grain of wheat had been kept in the, in the farmer's granary, it never would have produced a harvest. Thousands of years later, 
they entered into the tombs of the pharaohs of Egypt and they buried the pharaohs of Egypt with grain. The grain was there, but it never produced a harvest. It had to be taken out. And there it died. And through dying, it produced life. And that teaches us about the death of Christ. The death of Christ was a necessity. Jesus taught in order for people to experience life with him in the kingdom of God, he had to die as the seed would die on the ground. Notice the usage of the word except. That word except in John's gospel, it can also mean unless. So Jesus was saying unless, unless he would die, there would be no spiritual harvest except or unless. And the Bible teaches us very plainly that there's life in Christ, but there's life through the death of Christ. It's through his death. The law couldn't be set aside. Justice had to be satisfied. The demands of the law had to be paid. The judge could not set aside the law book of heaven. And thus God sent his son to pay the demands of God's holy law. And he lived and he died in the room and in the stead of his guilty people. Isaiah spoke of this. Isaiah 53 and 10. It tells us it pleased the Lord to bruise him. For he hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. Jehovah. In our King James in the capital letters. The Lord. He took his son. And it pleased him to bruise his son. His soul was made an offering for sin. And it was because the soul of Christ was made an offering for sin <coughs> that Christ was going to see his seed. Without the cross work of our dear Saviour, we have no gospel to proclaim. Oh, to today, men and women, what we have in this land are celebrations. That's what they call church services today, celebrations. We have motivational talks. But we have very little preaching of the blood-stained banner of the cross of Jesus. But that bloody cross is where life is to be found. And I would prefer this whole building to be shut up and closed. And for that cross to suffer loss. The Lord Jesus died voluntarily. As is shown to us by the usage of the words if I die. No man took his life away from him. He was a willing sacrifice. And if he had not have died voluntarily, <clears throat> if men had have forced him to die, he would not have been that willing and obedient sacrifice. No man took away his life. He freely, voluntarily, he laid it down. What a saviour. 
Go with me please to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 verse 15 to verse 18. John 10 verse 15. Jesus said, As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, <coughs> them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me. But I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. The Lord Jesus, he voluntarily laid down his life for his sheep. If you're a child of God tonight, you've got the mark of grace upon you. You're his sheep. I, I, I love looking up in the mountains of Morn. I love to see way in the distance the sheep on the the mountains grazing, and you can just see their markings. They belong to someone. And I don't know what that marking means, but the farmer knows the mark, and he knows those sheep belong to him. And God looks into this great mass of humanity, which is the world that we live in, and he sees his sheep, and they have the mark of grace upon them. The ones for whom... He freely, voluntarily laid down his life. The death of Christ literally took place on the cross. There are many liberal theologians and of all types of fanciful notions as to why he didn't really die on the cross literally. He just fainted, he swooned, he passed out. And then in the tomb he, he came uh, back again unto himself. And that's why they explain away the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ. But this grain of wheat literally died. It had to die. If it hadn't have died, there'd be no harvest. It's emphasized in every gospel. Matthew 27, 50. We read, when Jesus had cried again with a loud voice, he yielded up the ghost. The same is said in Mark 15, 37. Luke 23, 46. But in John 19, there's a, a new emphasis given uh, to Jesus giving up the ghost. We read, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. He was in control right to the end. That head didn't drop down. He bowed his head. He was in total control. And as he bowed his head and as he gave up the ghost, something happened. The Roman soldiers came afterwards and when they saw that he was dead already. Can you imagine Roman soldiers who had put hundreds of people to death in that execution squad, as it were, been taken in that this man's not really dead, he's just fainted there on the cross. Can you imagine those men been taken in by that? There's no way they would ever have been taken in by that. But out of cruelty and enmity they took the spear and they thrust it into the Saviour's side. He was dead. He literally died on the cross. But he victoriously triumphed over death. The seed was sown in the ground where it died. And there's no words of mine could convey the weight of guilt and sin 
which covered the Savior on the cross. It was such a heavy weight of sin. The Bible tells us that the Father turned his face away from the Son. The eternal seed was hid from the Father's sight as it bore the punishment of all of his people's due. And on the cross he died and in the borrowed tomb he was buried. He was hid. The tomb was not the end of the story but the beginning. You see in reality the Christian faith starts where every other religion ends. Every other religion ends in the death of the founder of that religion. But the tomb is empty. The first green blade that issued from the death of Christ appeared three days later when the news was spread amongst the disciples. He is risen. He is risen. Christ was to be the firstborn among many brethren. Life was to come out of death. And those who know Christ as their saviour, you and I, we can face death triumphantly. Why? Because Christ has been all victorious. And as he triumphed, we will triumph in him. Missionally, this seed sown is still producing harvests. That wonderful thought. Jesus said in Isaiah 53 and 10, he shall see his seed. And the seed of the harvest of Calvary has still been gathered in. The Greeks who came in John 12, they were but the harbingers of millions others who would come. The Jews who lined the streets, those 3,000 others who would be converted in Pentecost, they were just but a token of what was to follow. R.J. Macduff wrote on this. A multitude growing ever since Abel bent a solitary worshipper in the heavenly sanctuary with a solitary song. The first solitary sheaf in these heavenly granaries. Abel. Remember Abel who presented the blood sacrifice? The first redeemed soul around the throne of God. But there have been multitudes, untold multitudes, have joined him since. And untold multitudes yet to be gathered in. The song is deepening. The sheaves are multiplying. They're all been gathered in. Finally, we have here a wonderful picture of the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24 points to the cross. Verse 25 points to the conversions that follow the cross. <clears throat> There's no conversion if you haven't been at the cross. But if you've been at the cross, there is conversion. And that's what verse 25 teaches us. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Those who desire to be saved by Christ must experience uh, that death that Christ experienced. The seed has to die. That means dying to sin. That's repentance. There's no salvation without repentance. Saying no to sin. You can't have heaven and your sin. That's the, the false gospel that has been preached today. But you can't have heaven and your sin. And it's not enough just to die to sin. Sin has to be buried. So you have to leave it behind. You don't walk with it. You don't uh, travel with it. It has to be left behind. And once sin is left behind, then the blade starts to grow. The first shoots start to appear. 
and the blessings of the gospel of grace, they keep on bearing fruit, even into old age. Redemption, justification, sanctification, uh, glorification. They keep on bearing fruit. Isn't that the wonderful thing about it? This is a harvest that will keep on giving, even in eternity to come. It's going to keep on giving. We're going to keep on reaping. I, I pray that the, the green blades of grace will ever be evident in all of our lives. Sometimes we talk about salvation as if it's just a past experience. I was saved when I was 16. Is that all there is to it? If that's all there is to it, there was nothing to it. I am being still saved today, all these years later. He's still saving me every day. He's still changing me. He's still conforming in me. He's still making me in his image more and more like him. And more and more every day I have to die. Yeah. That's why Paul said, I die daily. I have to die. And in death there is the living. And it doesn't matter what happens to the Christian. In the death, through the death, there is the living. I was greatly blessed once again in reading the story of Dr. Bill Woods. is told in that lovely little book, The Angel of the Amazon. And one of the factors that God used to call Bill Woods to missionary work in, in Brazil and South America was through the witness and the testimony of Fred and Ina Orr, who were pioneer missionaries of the Acre Mission to Brazil. Before leaving for Brazil, they'd been asked to conduct a mission in our Mount Marion congregation in Belfast. And Fred preached, and his wife Ina sang every night. And with compassion, she sang that old missionary hymn. And Bill Woods attended those meetings as a young man. And part of it goes like this. Let me burn out for thee, dear Lord. Burn and wear out for thee. Don't let me rust or my life be a failure, my God, to thee. Use me and all that I have, dear Lord. And get me so close to thee that I feel the throb of the great heart of God until I burn out they. She sang that lovely hymn the night before they left for Brazil. They left in March 1954. They had a long protracted journey and when they got to Brazil they had a further long protracted journey up the Amazon River to where they were going to be based and on that journey she contracted a high fever. And she hadn't the energy after the journey to fight the infection. And she passed into God's presence, a young missionary. Just stepping out of the boat, as it were, onto the field on the 4th of June, 1954. And the first duty that Fred Orr had to do in Brazil was to attend to the funeral of his new wife. Of course, when that word got back home, the, the church here was stunned, but it was also challenged. Who will go? They didn't say, who can we bring them back home? The church said here, well, who will go and take her place? And it was in the wake of that tragedy that God called a Dr. Bill Woods to be a missionary in Brazil. And of course that story has still been told. 
Bill Woods, as an old man now in his 80s, is still in Brazil. Serving the Lord, even in his, in his end time days. The seed which was sown in life and died, it's still bringing forth fruit. And dear believer, at this harvest season, let us not allow that lesson to be lost on us. doesn't matter how many years you or I have left on the journey. The important thing is that until the journey is over, that we want to bear fruit for the Lord. And we want our lives to be used by the Lord. And even when the journey is finished, we want our life to have been such that we have sown the seed that there's still a harvest. There's still a harvest been reaped after we are gone. Use me and all that I have, dear Lord, and get me so close to thee that I feel the throb of the great heart of God until I burn out for thee. Dear Christian, that's where we want to get to tonight. And to get there, we have to die to self and to self-ambition. And we have to die to all except Christ and what he has for us. At this harvest season, I'm talking to the Christians, will you put your life afresh upon the altar for God? Will you say, as those young people way back in Mount Marion did in the 1950s, here am I, Lord, use me. At home, abroad, and across the sea, here am I, Lord, use me. Let's start here and on alone, where God has placed us. Let's be the seed that dies, that brings forth fruit. Let's all unite our hearts.